as I was listening to Pastor Adam make some announcements, it struck me that I think that he thinks that the more enthusiastically he says, 6 a.m. Tuesday mornings, uh, the more attractive uh, getting up early to join a prayer meeting will be. Um, But really, it is uh, a good time. I commend it uh, to you as well. You know, we are, I'm sure, uh, all very familiar with warnings. Um, You couldn't open your weather app over the last number of weeks without seeing a big red bar probably across it that said, extreme cold warning, right? Anybody see this? Yeah, right? Which is really odd when you think that just six months ago it said, extreme heat warning, right? I mean, this like 70 plus degrees change in temperature only in Edmonton, only in Edmonton. You know, um, I have a car that has a warning little... uh, you know, a little message center. Some of you have seen this as well. My car says when it's like plus three to minus three, it sort of comes up and says, caution, roads may be icy. Have you, anybody, something like that? No? Okay, so you something similar, right? Right now, mine says, you idiot, go home and stay home. Any of us, whether it's on maybe Google web browser, you've seen a yellow triangle with an explanation mark. We have other car warnings for tire pressure and oil pressure, all of those kind of things. And all of these warnings have one purpose, and that is to alert us to the fact that we need to pay attention because if we don't, it could lead to some serious issues. Well, in today's text that the Leong family read for us, Paul issues a few warnings of his own. Originally, he was warning the Colossian believers of false teachers that were subtly attacking and undermining their faith in Jesus. And I want to suggest to you today that that is still applicable and relevant even today. This morning we're returning to our series that we started last fall in the book of Colossians. We've gathered our thoughts uh, under this word, with. Just a reminder that we are with God and God is with us and we are to be with others as well. And recognizing that this relationship with God, being in relationship with Jesus, is what it's really all about. And what was happening to the Colossians, they had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Their lives had been changed. They had been turned upside down. They're walking in this new faith. And some were coming along and then just saying, you know what? Your faith in Jesus is okay. But it's not quite good enough. It's Jesus plus something else. And so I've gathered my thoughts as I looked at many different uh, commentators and looked at different, uh, uh, did some research on this. There were three words that were repeatedly used, and I thought, well, I can't reinvent the wheel, um, and so I'll put myself in good company when I use these words. But what I did is I added kind of a phrase that I hope will be helpful to understanding them. The three words, bear with me, are legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. So first, legalism. I know they're big words, but bear with me. I'll try to explain as we go. I capture this under the thought of just relationship, not rules, okay? Think about legalism in that sense, that it's about a relationship, not rules. We find this in verses 16 and 17 that were already read for us. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. 
You see, Paul is addressing this issue of legalism. And the definition of legalism is simply this, that it is salvation by human achievement or a works-based salvation. And he's warning them against legalism because basically they're coming along and saying, well, Jesus is good, but it's Jesus plus rules. And so Paul warns the Colossians and he says, listen, don't let anyone condemn you or anyone judge you. And this warning had two very specific areas, diet and days. Evidently, there were those who were saying that the key to relationship with Jesus was that you also had to eat or not eat certain food. Foods. So this goes back to the Old Testament dietary laws, and there were two basic categories of food, clean and unclean. Eat the clean food and don't eat the unclean food. Pretty easy, right? But doing so was a key to a relationship with God or to true spirituality. But when Jesus came, the dietary laws were abolished. The Pharisees, who had mastered legalism by this point, they're offended by the, the freedom and the, the they're, sorry, they're offended by the freedom that the disciples of Jesus had with respect to food. If you want to read about this, you can go to Mark, or Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and Mark chapter 7, verse 1 to 23. Let me just read you a few verses from Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Now, Jesus had just been engaged in this encounter with the Pharisees and around this issue of clean and unclean food. And so then later on, he's with his disciples, and even his disciples go, like, what was that all about? And he says this to his disciples. We don't normally hear Jesus talking like this, but I think it's pretty appropriate. He goes, are you so dull? (laughs) He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. Now we know what he's referencing there. But he adds this, Mark does, in parentheses, he says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. You see, time and time again, you see that Jesus was always concerned about the heart, about the motivation. Now, there are other New Testament passages that clearly teach that there is no longer any distinction between clean and unclean foods. And in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, Paul concludes it this way. He says, But food does not bring us near to God, for we are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. And the message of the New Testament is basically that all food and drink is lawful. But just because something is permissible, not everything is beneficial. Right? And that principle can apply to many, many different things. But the point is, is that yes, diet and nutrition are good. We should think about what we put into our bodies. We don't want a diet, you know, to consist of pop and chips, um, you know, chips and dip maybe, but, but not just ordinary chips. But the point is that eating or not eating certain foods definitely is not a true or a sign of true spirituality. And Paul's warning here is, in fact, to not judge others or allow others to judge us simply on the basis of food and drink, because these are external things. They have nothing to do with the heart. They have everything to do with the stomach. Now, the other issue that he refers to is not just diet, but days. He says, don't let anyone condemn you for not celebrating certain 
holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. And the Jewish people, they had their special feast days, their new moon celebrations, and their Sabbaths. They had this rhythm of annual festivals and, and monthly observances and, and, even, and then weekly um, Sabbaths as well. And again, when Jesus came, he said he fulfilled them all. And so we no longer celebrate a specific Sabbath because we now worship on the Lord's day. That this Sunday, the reason we gather on the first day of the week is not in recognition of a Sabbath. It's in recognition of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we come together to celebrate what he has done. But the false teachers were also telling the believers at Colossae that in order to be like real Christians, they needed to observe the days that were all laid out in the Old Testament. Their message was clear, Jesus plus rules. And that would be the only way to true spirituality. Now today, we may not be facing dietary laws and Jewish special, special, day, special days, easy for me to say, but we find other areas of legalism as well. Because the point is, is that whenever we focus on external things, whenever we focus on a bunch of rules, as that being the key to being really spiritually, we're actually dealing with the exact same issue. We're dealing with legalism. I grew up, actually, in a very legalistic church. I survived, but truthfully, some didn't. At some point, I had an encounter with God's grace that helped me understand what it was really all about. But we had our own version of the seven deadly sins, drinking, dancing, smoking, going to movies, Sunday sports, playing cards, chewing tobacco, and, uh, and going with girls who do. Um, I made that last one up. But, but, but actually, it was probably true. It was like, you know, if anybody engages in any of these activities, then they are less than spiritual. And because you don't do those things, you're more spiritual. And therefore, you shouldn't spend time with them. The list was actually a lot longer than that. You know, our hair had to be cut over our ears. The ladies had to wear dresses. They couldn't wear pants. Uh, certainly no jewelry, men or women. <laughs> um, makeup. The list went on and on and on. And I never really understood that growing up. A lot of it didn't make sense to me. And I think when we think about legalism, and this whole message could be just on this one topic alone, but um, our uh, founding pastor, Ken McDonald, and and, um, our former senior pastor, who's now pastoring Southwest Community Church, our church plant, um, he used to always have this phrase, keeping it between the ditches. I don't know if you ever remember him using that in, in a sermon, but maybe it was just in conversation around theology, around, uh, around practice, around leadership and whatever. And so the, this, this image is always in my mind about keeping it between the ditches. And I think that that applies to this, because on one hand, you have the ditch of legalism, right? And all of the rules that, that we might be um, tempted to follow simply because the external observance of these things makes us more spiritual or we think that we're more spiritual than we really are, and then we can look down at other people who don't do some of the same things or do do some of those things. And on the other ditch, we have license, right? It's like, I can do anything I want because I walk in grace and freedom, right? And so we have these two extremes, and I'm suggesting to you that there is a place to keep it between the ditches, 
where we walk this narrow road, where we understand that, yes, we walk in freedom, but we also walk in grace, and we never want to cheapen, cheapen grace. And that might mean that there's days that we keep or days that we don't keep. There might be certain food that we eat and certain food that we don't eat. But the point is, is that when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ, we are walking in a relationship with him. And that's why I say relationship and not rules. Now, my response ultimately to Jesus is that I'm motivated by my love. My love for Jesus ultimately compels me to walk in obedience, to know that I'm loved not because of what I do, but I do because I'm loved. Think about it this way. What what motivates you to love your spouse or to love your children? You don't have a long list that you have to wake up in the morning and memorize and say, if I do all these things, then I love my wife or I love my husband or I love my child. No, we love (laughs) first. That's our motivation. And then our actions ultimately follow. It's what the Bible calls the law of love, the law of love for God and for others. And so, yes, I may be free and it may even be lawful for me to do a certain thing, but at the same time, doing that may not be helpful to others. And so freedom must always be controlled because we belong to Jesus and to one another. You know, a quick illustration, getting back to the subject of food and my studies, I came across this. And I don't know why this never really has jumped out at me before, but it's just Romans 14. It's a great passage. It returns to this area of food. And I hope you'll uh, bear with me just as I touch on this. Except the one whose faith is weak, Paul writes, without quarreling over disputable matters. There, there's a, we could just full stop and just say, you know, there's a sermon right in there, isn't it? Quarreling over disputable matters. There are things that we're going to disagree on. Except the one whose faith is weak. Except basically one another is what he eventually goes on to say. But one person's faith, I love what he says here, allows them to eat anything. They're free. But another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Sorry, vegetarians. Um, Paul's not being overly kind there when he says that your faith is, is weak. But then he says, the one who eats everything, that is now the meditarian, in contrast to the vegetarian, you know, you've got the vegetables and you've got the prime rib, you must not treat with contempt the one who does not, who doesn't eat those things, and the one who does not eat everything, so the vegetarian, must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Just a little illustration there, I think, of this, of this point. Is that we can't judge one another. And so Paul says, listen, it's not about a list of rules. It's about a relationship. So let me just say a general word about practices. Because last week, Pastor Adam and myself, we shared nine different practices. And by no means are those rules. They are not a way to gain favor with God. They are not a way to be the super spiritual, super Christian. They're a means of deepening our relationship with Jesus and as a means of allowing the Holy Spirit to do a work of transformation in my life. And just because I may participate in those practices, I cannot look down on others who choose to not engage in those practices. Now, I'm suggesting to you that they are a great way to deepen your relationship with Jesus. But we can never become legalistic about them or make them a set of rules. 
And we can't do that about practices, and we can't do that about anything external for that matter, and then suddenly step back and condemn or judge those that don't do them. I think a Sabbath is, is, is a perfect example of this because, you know, it's one thing to be legalistic about that. That's the environment I grew up in. We could not do anything but basically have a nap on Sunday afternoons, which is a great practice, by the way. But we couldn't do anything else. Turn that around and look at what the Bible teaches about Sabbath and recognize that it is a gift from God for us who work, you know, six days a week to take one day, a day of rest and enjoy that with him and with with, with fellow believers for our restoration, for our reformation. What is ultimately going to change my heart? He says in verse 17, Uh, For these rules, all of the rules that he's referring to, are only shadows of the reality yet to come. They're only shadows. And Christ himself is that reality. What's he saying? Basically this, shadows aren't real, right? They don't actually exist. They just point to something real. So when you're walking down the street, you're coming to a corner, and you see the shadow of somebody coming the other way, you see the shadow before you see them, but you can't do anything with the shadow. You wait till you recognize, oh, that's who it is, and then you can hug the real thing. But so many times we spend our time chasing shadows, chasing a relationship with Jesus by following a set of rules and pursuing these things without recognizing that Christ himself is the real thing. And he wants our hearts more than anything else. And I suspect there's many other verses that can come to mind as I, as I, even as I say that. Right? When he says, you know, these people come near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. See, Jesus wants our hearts He wants our hearts. He wants to be in a relationship with us. Not on the basis of a bunch of rules to keep. We can also say relationship and not experiences. Relationship and not experiences. And I have to be careful here, but bear with me. Verses 18 through 19, Paul writes, Don't let anyone condemn you, again, this judging, condemning, by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. Now Paul is warning them about mysticism. And again, there were some who were causing them to question their faith. And here it appears that they were adding to their relationship with Jesus experiences. And mysticism basically is this unbridled pursuit of experiences. And to that, Paul says, don't let anyone condemn you. The NIV is maybe even a little bit clearer. It says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. So don't let anyone disqualify you, he's warning them. 
Evidently, there were some who were then acting as referees, watching and judging the faith of others based solely on whether or not they had had an experience. And if they didn't have an experience with Jesus in some sense, or plus Jesus, again, it wasn't good enough. Now, don't get me wrong. God absolutely can and does act in our lives supernaturally. The very fact that you are a follower of Jesus today is because of God's activity in your life at some previous point. However, our faith has to be rooted in Christ. It has to be rooted in Jesus and His work and His Word, not on our experiences. And it's when people come along and say things like, like, well, I don't want to brag. <laughs> right there, you know, like, okay, boy, here, here's something's coming, Right? But I had an experience the other day. I saw a vision. You know, we were all in a circle. and In the middle of the circle were angels. And we all were bowing down to worship them. It was just awesome. And you're kind of looking at them like, what? Why would we be worshiping angels? We worship Jesus. But they can tell on your look at their face. They're like, what? You don't have visions like that? What are they doing? Judging the faith of others. And Paul says, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. You see, the Colossians had already received Christ Jesus as Lord. We've been through this already. They were rooted and they were built up in Him. And then he comes to Colossians 2 verses 9 and 10. He says, for in Christ, for in Christ, because you're in Christ, he says, in all the, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. God becoming man. This is what the incarnation was all about. We just came through Christmas, so it should be clear in our minds. God came. And he drew near to us, the form of Jesus. And Paul says, and in Christ, you too have been brought to fullness. Brought to fullness. In other words, you are complete. You are whole in Christ. There is nothing more that you need than Jesus alone. And here were these characters saying, it's not true spirituality if you don't have visions and experiences. And what he's saying is that mystics will brag about their experiences in this spiritual realm, which tend to be pretty subjective sometimes. And in the context here, it is a mysticism derived from the pretense and imagination of the false teachers themselves. Because the false teachers were saying that true spirituality only comes when you then have mystical experiences. Experiences that can't actually be verified or proven real. As one commentator put it, in a quest for ecstasy, they have lost touch with reality. I read a a story about Johnny Kerr, who was the late coach of the Chicago Bulls. The team had lost seven in a row, and he decided that he needed to give the team a psychological pep talk before their next game. And so he got all of his players together, and he says, you just need to pretend. You, you need to pretend that you're the best scorer in basketball, and you need to pretend that you're the best defensive guard, and you need to pretend that you can run an offense better than any other point guard in the league. You need to pretend that you're the best rebounding, shot-blocking, scoring center in the league. It's a tactic that maybe the Oilers might benefit from. It won't work. 
Didn't work for the Bulls either. They lost by 17. And after the game, he's pacing around the locker room trying to figure out what to say when one of his players walked up to him, put his arm around and said, don't worry about it, coach. Just pretend we won. In a quest for ecstasy, they've lost touch with reality. Again, I'm not suggesting that there isn't a place for the supernatural, but I think that there is a humility that comes when we can be naturally supernatural. And when we have those experiences, we don't go around using them to discredit others or to disqualify them. And there's more that could be said, I know. But in verse 19, Paul tells us really what the real problem is. He says, they, those ones that are pursuing these um, experiences, these mystics, they're not connected to Christ. In fact, he says, the head of the body, for he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. What's he saying? He's basically saying they've lost connection with Jesus that they had drifted from their faith. They had been walking with Jesus, but instead of being rooted and built up and strengthened in the faith the way the Colossians were, they somehow had lost that connection. They lost this connection with Jesus, who Paul says is the head of the church, which meant that ultimately they lost connection with the community of believers, the body of Christ that is held together by Christ. And when it's together, it grows. That's what he's saying. Friends, That is why community is so vitally important. We do not grow by ourselves, tucked away in our rooms, having our own little mystical experiences. We grow in relationship with Jesus when we are in relationship with others. And when we pull away or we drift away, and friends, this is the danger, right? We get into our own little world with no one around to ground us. That's why we talk about walking with Jesus in the company of others. Friends, I think Paul's encouragement to you and I is just hold fast to Jesus. Hold tight to Jesus. Hold other believers close. Stay connected to Jesus and to other believers. And together we grow in relationship with Him and with one another. And lastly, Paul warns them about asceticism, or what I'll call relationship, not extremes. And you'll understand what I mean by that in a moment. But what is asceticism? I know it's a big word. It's not one that we maybe use very often. But basically, it can be defined as a systematic, severe, self-denial of ordinary, normal, bodily pleasures as a means to attaining a holy life. Let me read these verses, and then I'll, I'll come back and explain this a little bit. You have died with Christ, Paul wrote, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human t- teachings that, about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help, he says, listen, in conquering a person's evil desires. Now, the desire or the pursuit in that definition of a holy life, right? 
That is a good and right pursuit. That should be the desire of every follower of Jesus. And so spiritual discipline is good. Using spiritual practices is right. But the problem comes with the way that we might pursue these. Aesthetics, or aesthetics, um, ascetics, uh, more popular during the Middle Ages, believed that the body was evil and that the soul was good and that the way that you ultimately cared for your soul was by neglecting the body because the body is evil. Now, you can probably come to some very quick rational understandings of why that's wrong, but in their belief, it was in order to become more spiritual, they practiced this extreme self-denial and even self-mortification. They literally physically abused their bodies. They punished themselves, all for the intent to kill their sinful nature. Good point, but guess what? It's already been done. For the believer, you've died with Christ. Now, if you're interested in this, you might want to read about some of them. I'm warning you, it doesn't make for easy reading. Because some of them were crazy, weird, gruesome, gross. You know, they did things like wore shirts of hair against their skin just to irritate them continually so that they would be aware of the, the, the evil of their bodies. Or they slept on hard beds. Or they didn't sleep at all for long periods of time. There's one I read about who lived in a hole. Some literally whipped themselves. Some didn't talk for days or even years. One never even changed his clothes or washed his feet. You might know someone like that. I don't know. But if they're doing it, they're probably not doing it for spiritual reasons. That was their whole motivation. If we can just deny ourselves physically, then we will be that much more spiritual. One guy that I wrote about, Simeon Stylites, he lived from 390 to 459. So he was 69 years old. I did the, did the math. He spent 36 years, more than half of his life, on the top of a 50-foot pillar. That's what he did. He just sat up there and waited for other people to bring him some stale bread every once in a while because he wrongly thought that the pathway to true spirituality lay in exposing himself to the elements and withdrawing from the world. Now, I know those are extreme, but it really highlights for us the difference between religion and Christianity. Because ultimately, the Christian faith is about a relationship with the person of Jesus. And in a loving relationship, he doesn't ask us to go to crazy extremes to prove your love for him. Absolutely, we may, for a time, abstain from something or fast from food. But these practices are not an end in and of themselves. They're a means to being transformed. You see, Jesus himself commended fasting, but not so that we might appear to be more holy than others. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. 
Because in fasting, there is something that happens when we practice saying no. And it does help us uh, to kind of push down, if you will, that sinful nature. But ultimately, it's not even in the practice that we trust in or depend on. We depend on the Holy Spirit to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Our role is simply to pursue a relationship. Because we will never be holy on our own. But we follow Jesus. We live in relationship with Jesus. And we recognize that it's not about rules, and it's not about experiences, and it's not about extremes. But it is that we walk in His way. Why would we ever pursue the shadows when we can have the real thing? Let's pray. Father, give you thanks for your word. I pray, Father, that your spirit would take my clumsy words and bring clarity to our lives as we seek to be people who are connected with you, Jesus. That we're connected with you in relationship. And it's because of that relationship where we understand the depth and the width and the height of your love for us that it would cause us to walk in faith and obedience and humility. Walk with you as we walk with others, as we literally put ourselves arm in arm, hand to hand, and together as your body grow together into the the church you desire us to be and to the followers of Jesus that you want us to be, people who are practicing the way of Jesus. So Father, even as we'll sing now, I pray that the invitation that you would come and build our lives, that we would be a people as Paul encouraged the Colossians to be, to be a people who are rooted in Christ, who are built up, strengthened, established, and people who are overflowing with thanksgiving. So thank you for all that you've done in our lives. We know we could never do it on our own. And thank you for all that you will continue to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.